um, where God resided, okay? And in there, there was an altar, and there was all kinds of other tents, but there was an altar at the very center of it. Center of it. And what was, what was true was that God resided in the center of that tent. God was with them. That was their promise. And that as they traveled, he was with them. And so everybody came on that one day, and Moses instituted this new day. What he had done was Aaron, who was the priest, did a number, made a number of sacrifices, but two of the sacrifices he made that were most significant were the sacrifice of these two goats. What happened was, and we're going to read it in a minute, but what happened was the first goat he brought and he killed it. And he took its blood and he sprinkled it. A payment for sin, if you would. He sprinkled it on the altar and he sprinkled it in a number of different ways. And then he took this second goat, which for me has always been the goat I wouldn't want to be. When I thought, like, okay, which goat, which goat is the goat you really don't want to be? He would take this second goat and he would put his hands on it and he would pray. It's a scapegoat. And he would, he would lay upon the goat's head all the sins of the people of Israel. And then that goat would be given to another man who would take the goat out from the tent and he would take it into the desert and into the wilderness and it would be released to wander where it would ultimately end its life, I'm sure, in some ignominious way. Completely isolated and completely alone. And so let's look at these few verses with just for a minute from Leviticus 16. And this is how the Bible describes that time. Then he whose Aaron the priest is to take two goats and present them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. He's to cast lots for the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other for the scapegoat. Aaron shall bring the goat whose lot falls to the Lord and sacrifice it for a sin offering. He would kill it. But the goat chosen by lot as the scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord to be used for making atonement by sending it into the desert as a scapegoat. And then Aaron will bring a bull for his own sin offering and make his atonement for himself and his household. He is to slaughter the bull for his own sin offering. So he, he made not only an offering for the people, but he made an offering for himself. So that was the fate of these two goats. Two, uh, Bill Hybels describes it this way. He says, you know, what happens in, in, in atonement is that a completely innocent third party provides the sacrifice on behalf of the guilty and the guilty go free. That, uh, that seems hard to believe, but that is what's happening in atonement. The sins laid on these two goats, the death of one and the isolation and the casting out of the other. In that story, each of those people or each of those characters stands for something different, stands for something more than just what they are. In that story, the priest stands for God. He stands for God the Father, I think, more specifically. Who is the one, I think we're going to show in a moment here, is the one who's absolutely offended and who's been the person that's been attacked in all of our sins. We think it's thieving, we think it's lying, we think it's a, a lot of small things, but in reality, it, it's, it's, it's cosmic rebellion. And in that story, the priest stands for God. The goats stand for the ultimate sacrifice. Ultimately, we think Christians believe that that sacrifice was Jesus, but they stand for the sacrifice that has to be made, the payment that has to be made. Now, the priest provides the goats. People can't, you can't, if, you, if your sin is big enough, 
you can't really make amends for it yourself. Somebody still has to make a payment for that. And in, and in the case, it's God the Father that provides that. And the people, the assembly, which stands for us, is sort of absent, right? They don't really do anything. And, and the implication there is that what is happening in atonement is that we simply act passively in faith. We watch and we see, we consider the, we consider the, the depth of our own sin. We consider the goodness of God who's taking care of it for us. We consider what it's costing Him. And at the end of that, we accept His substitution, the goats that He provided as a penalty and, and the penalty that they received, we accept that in, in our stead. So that is the picture of what happened at the Day of Atonement. And it's hard to imagine, but a lot of blood. I mean, a lot of blood. All those offerings that had to be made, a lot of blood. Not a, not a pretty sight. So, I still have this problem with the idea of proportion. Really. Was that necessary? Is that kind of sacrifice really necessary for sin and for guilt? But when I talk, I want to I talk about those two things together because they seem to go together all the time. You know, what's guilt? Guilt is... I'm not talking about remorse. We'll get to that in a, in a little bit here. But guilt is this pricking of our conscience that occurs that, you know, when we sense that we've done something wrong, we've committed a foul, we've crossed the line, we've damaged a relationship or broken a law. And it's really under everything. When you start to look around life and you start turning over stones, what you find is that guilt lives in a symbiotic relationship with a lot of not so very pleasant things. So, you know, you turn over your rock of depression and what do you find mixed in with it? Guilt. When you turn over the rock of discouragement, what's in there with it? It's guilt. When, when you think about why is it that I'm procrastinating and I'm not taking care of the things in my life that I know are really important, it's because you feel guilty about something. Well, why are you being lazy? Guilt's mixed in there too. Why are you working too hard? Guilt's mixed in with that. Why am I so addicted? I feel guilty about that too. Guilt has this symbiotic relationship with all these issues in our life where it's adding energy to those behaviors and making things really much, much worse. Everything's broken and everybody knows it. Nobody's in denial of it. You know, if I just start throwing out some words, you can answer broken. If I say economy, you can say broken. If I say financial system, you can say. If I say government, you can say. If I say DMV, you can say really broken. Yeah. And it's because people are involved in everything and people are broken. And broken's another word for sin. It's, it's, it's not being all we're cracked up to be. Stuff doesn't work. Stuff is really broken. You know, I can say spouse and you can say, not very loud, uh, broken. Uh, boyfriend, girlfriend, broken. Parents, broken. I muse and I, lie. I think it's funny when I see a, a new mother post on Facebook that her children's diapers smell like the sweet morning dew and that her child is a wonderful person. And I think that one day that child will be 13 and you will know that the child is broken, really broken. And you get up every morning and you look in the mirror and you think, broken, broken. It's everywhere. We employ uh, armies of people and tools to try to take care of the problem. We hire psychiatrists, we hire psychologists, we use antidepressants, we use priests, we use pastors, we use anti-anxiety medicine, we use all of our addictions, we use all these things, and at the end of it, we still have an overwhelming sense of guilt. The proportion of guilt is high, and that is a clue to why such a high sacrifice. 
it, it, when we talk about sins, um, there's one of two approaches, but both of them, but the basic approach is to trivialize or minimize the reality of sin and its severity. If you're an irreligious person, you'll think it's sort of a medieval notion and just sort of dismiss it. If you're a religious person, you'll try to quantify it in neat lists so that you can just avoid those things and you'll think you have the problem of sin taken care of. But, but um, one thing I would say about sin is that it's not, if, if those are the only things you're focusing on your list, then you're going to come up with an answer that says, I don't think that the proportion of the sacrifice in the Day of Atonement is really the right one. It seems like it's a little bit out of scale. But here's what happens. There's really, when sin happens, there's not that sin. There's actually another sin that happens before it. The sin that you think is the first sin is really the second sin. Remember last week, Bruce talked about how God had our back. God has our back. I mean, that's great news. God has our back. Well, the, the first sin actually is thinking, God doesn't have my back. Doesn't have my back at all. There was this, um, anybody, used to, anybody else watch Arrested Development when it used to be on? Um, love Arrested Development. Anybody like Lucille? Yeah. Lucille was the matriarch of the family. She's a martini swilling, manipulative, uh, awful mother. Um, she sets one child against the other. And in one of the funniest moments uh, of, of the whole series, uh, her son Buster, uh, played by Tony Hale, um, who was totally under her sway and her, um, I don't know, whatever it was, he was totally underneath her, her sway. He sort of has a moment of clarity and he says, Mom gets off on being withholding. And it's really funny, you know, because we, in some ways, uh, we're all withholding. And it, it's funny because it's Lucille Bluth. It's, it's not so funny when you say that about God. God does, in fact, have our back. This is the God that when he went to create us, he blew into dust and he created us in his own image. This is the God to whom when we die, we will return back as dust. This is the God who in between danced over our birth and provided every good thing that's ever come into our lives. And yet our response, the first sin, is to say, you don't have my back. You're really just a martini swilling manipulative parent. And, and we see this in the story of Eve, right? The, the first sin wasn't that she, took the, that she took the fruit. She didn't take an apple. She took the fruit. The first sin was that she thought that God was holding something back from her. That if she ate the fruit, that she would have be like God and she would have a sense of good and evil. And he was holding back from her. And the same thing happens in our sins. Why do you tell a lie? Because if you tell the truth, something bad will happen. You can't trust God to live the truth. Why do you fudge an expense report to get a little extra cash? No, that's the second sin. The first sin is that I don't think God is really my provider, and so I cheat on my taxes. But, but, but before the first sin, Tim Keller says, there's a stabbing of God. We, we, in real ways, the problem is not the list. The problem is that we've stabbed God. It is really, if you will, I would say it is a cosmic rebellion. It's an insurrection. And that's why the proportion is what it is. The proportion is we've stabbed God. And the response is there has to be a payment for that. Now, we can be stabbed ourselves. And, and, and a lot of us would really prefer that. You know, if I, if I offend my friend John... Rather than having to apologize to him, it might be just better if he just lets me pay him back, if I just endure something back. And so we're tit for tat, we're even, and, and that's a great relationship. But, you know, 
how are you going to repay back God for the, the, the knife that you left in his back? There's no accounting for that. And so the payment is the Day of Atonement. That's how those things all go together. In the goats, when we look at the goats, the thing that's really, really clear to me is that, you know, that they suffer the penalty, if you will. I'm going to use a phrase that I can't believe we're using today, but this penalty for sin. And in a way, they're a substitution for us. So, so when we sin, there's two things that happen. We die and we're isolated. And in this story, it's just so clear that that's what the goats are doing. They're dying and they're being isolated. The Bible, if you jump forward enough years, you come to the arrival of Christ to the people of Israel. And you come upon this simple verse, and since we're talking about gravity, we're talking about, there's this simple verse that we all have heard or seen it held up at a football game, like Bruce said, it's never, you never see that guy anymore, but it's John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believed would have life without end. And, and that, those words, you put those alongside the story of the Day of Atonement, and you see how they come together. That Jesus really is, 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 the, uh, is the goats. The goats didn't do anything wrong. They're the innocent, they're innocent third parties that are being raised up as a payment for the wrong that's done by the entire nation of Israel. And the same way it is for Jesus. The one true person, the one most trustable person, the one person without blemish, is the person who the payment with, is used as the payment for all of the unjust so that all of the unjust can go free. So that when Jesus was on the cross and he was dying and he cried out in a loud voice, you know, Father, why have you forsaken me? That wasn't just an exclamation. What was happening at that moment is that the sins of the world were being passed onto him, the hands of God directly on his head, passing the sins down onto Jesus. And, and the Father is holy as much as he is loving and cannot look upon that. And so in that moment, Jesus, who had enjoyed perfect communion and perfect relationship with God like we've never enjoyed, and who always enjoyed this beautiful trust and this, and this, this, this oneness with God, was absolutely ruptured and separated from him. When he says, you know, why have you forsaken me? He is falling into the deepest part of hell with our sins. And when he died, he died, you know, suspended on a cross with this, what's called a crown of thorns. Some thorns had been made on a, made into a sort of a makeshift crown and pushed on his head in a mocking way. And blood ran from that and dripped out onto the ground the same way that Aaron would have taken the blood of those goats and had dripped them on the altar. The difference was it wasn't the altar of of the tent, it was it was the ground of this world. It was the altar of this world, making that kind of an offering, you know, for all of us. So, in the symbols and, and of, of the Day of Atonement, and fast forwarding to John three sixteen, we see this simple verse that many people learn as children, and yet you see the depth and the gravity of it. That there's a need for for sin to be dealt with, that it needs to be done by God Himself, who pays the price. That, that those of us that receive us can do nothing of our own, that we're com- we need to be completely passive in that, then the, the guilty go free. Well, what's the response to that? Because we're so guilty and we have all kinds of ways we've been responding and we need to live differently. If you say to somebody, 
you know, you need to do better, they'll hear that. But if you tell them, you need to be born again, that's hard to hear. But in fact, that's exactly the right thing. We need new hearts. We don't need fixed hearts. We need new hearts. The language of, your old, of our old repent. we need to repent. The word the Bible uses is repent. And, and the old form, our old response to sin was this. Then when we felt guilt, we felt self-pity. And we hate ourselves. The language, the language of remorse is really, I've made such a mess of things, I can, it can never be fixed now. And when you start to feel like that, you go immediately to the counselor, right? It, it, it's, it's, it's this language of self-hatred, and it's a language of the fear of God. Remorse it really in the Latin means to be bitten twice, to be bitten again and again and again. And so remorse is not guilt. Remorse is the memory of guilt that's being inflicted upon you like an accusation, because that's what it is. And the language, and that language drives the response of hatred of self and fear of God. And and real repentance is the opposite. That what happens is in real repentance is that we're off the hook. I mean, who's going to pay more penalty than Jesus did? I mean, I'm guilty. Okay, I'm guilty. That's it. The payment's made. So you're going to accuse me again? Why? I know. The payment's made. No accusing me is not going to make it worse. So I can move past I'm such a terrible person and I can't, you know, I've just got to keep doing better. I need a second chance. If you're a smart person, don't ask for a second chance. You've already had your second, third, fourth, or fifth, and you didn't do any better on any of those anyway, you know? So the, in the language of the second, of the, this real kind of repentance is, I'm going to move towards God because he's completely trustable. And my sin was that I said he wasn't. And I'm absolutely going to learn how to hate, hate my, my sin. You won't be, in, you won't, you won't, be captured by it anymore. The way that happens, and this is not in, in, in the text in Leviticus, but the way that happens is we simply ask for it. It's an, it's an invitation. And we just say, I relent. I give up. I consider what I've done and I consider myself guilty. And I consider the payment that you're offering as plenty enough for me. Please fall into my heart. And so what happens is this seed of the gospel falls deep into our lives in the place, I don't know, I think it's deeper than, in my case, it's deeper than my heart. It's down here in my bowels somewhere. And, uh, and that seed falls in there, out of which is growing all of this fruit that I'm counting up in lists. And it begins to eat away at the roots of those sins, what's driving it. And pretty soon, that behavior withers. That's the way you get it sent. Not by clipping off the fruit at the top, not by dealing with the symptoms, but by allowing God Himself with His Spirit to fall deep into your, into your being, deep into your bowels, and there to begin to create a new life and a new heart. We don't need fixing so much as we really just need new life. We're going to have a great way to celebrate that and to do that right today. We're going to do communion. And what happens in communion is this image of God coming down into our lives. That we take this bread and we take this wine and, and, and we say, I invite you, God, deep into my life, wither the power of sin, please. Thank you that you've taken care of the guilt of my life. I'm a new person. I have a new life. I love the idea that when I take communion, somehow what I ingest diffuses into every cell of my life. 
And, and I think that that image is, is there for a reason. And so we're going to do communion. As you prepare for communion today, I want you to just keep these images in your head. Are you guilty? Of course you're guilty. What do you need to overcome guilt? To accept this free gift. The God that's provided the payment in the person of Jesus. And that it's not, it's, it is John 3.16, but it's so much more and so much deeper than that. As you come to communion, consider a new kind of repentance. And I'm going to leave you with some, just one, a, a set of words from Tim Keller that really resonate true with me. And that's, you know, be, the good news is that things are much worse than you ever imagined. You are much worse. And you're a much worse place than you could have ever imagined. And the good news is, the gospel is so much greater than that. If we don't fully embrace our guiltiness and really scratch underneath that and say, what's going on? We're always just going to be clipping off the fruit at the top and we're going to have really miserable lives. But if we're courageous enough to come forward, go deep with God, say, I am guilty, I can handle that, we can also hear God say, you're my daughter, you're my son. You can't hear, you're my daughter or you're my son until you repent. Because nothing comes without repentance. Let's pray. God, thank you for this communion. Thank you for today and for this atonement. Um, we're not glad we're guilty, but we're glad that you have made it right. And so um, today in this communion, what we want to, want to experience is freedom. Freedom from remorse and a realization that guilt is an invitation to accept your relationship deep with you either for the first time or for the 10,000th. Give us new hearts. Amen. Um, if the communion servers would come forward, I'm going to serve them first. So while I'm serving them, if you would just take time to, you know, stay in a mood of meditation and just kind of think about these things and let it fall deep inside you.